You can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at just a couple of verses in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. We are here in 1 Timothy, just started last week looking at 1 Timothy, and we, we started in verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 1, and we kind of looked, took a, a step back and looked at the whole book as a whole. And this week we're going to skip ahead, so to speak, to chapter 3. If you've ever been a part of a conversation with someone and you were thinking, come on, get to the point, uh, you would be forgiven if you felt like that if you were reading through 1 Timothy. Paul waits until chapter 3 until he tells Timothy the purpose for which he is writing. And it's not unusual that this happens. Uh, John the apostle, when he writes his gospel. He doesn't tell us why he's writing until the very end of his book. At the very end, he's like, I'm writing these things to you so that you might know and believe that this is the Son of God. Well, thank you. That's, that's, now we know why. Now we've got to reread the book of John. And, and Paul does it right here in the middle of the book, in verses 14 to 16, in which he tells Timothy why he is writing. And as we examine this passage, we may think to ourselves that as, he, as he's discussing the church, uh, this is unnecessary for most of us. If you have ever, if you can remember the time when you were in junior high and high school, perhaps some of you have always been or were always excellent students at everything, Perhaps you can know some of you, some of us, weren't always good students. I can remember more than once in which I felt sitting in math class, when will I ever need this? When will this ever be of any use to me? We're looking for those immediate applications to life. When am I ever going to need to know algebra and geometry and and, and when is this going to come in handy? In hand for me. When, when am I going to value and, and benefit from this? This is short-sighted, selfish way to live, immature. It's even superficial and unsatisfying. I mean, what is? We don't live this way in most areas of our lives. And what is the tangible benefit for us to enjoy a sunset? What is the tangible benefit for us to go outside on a day like today and enjoy the weather? What is the tangible benefit to you to going to the Philadelphia Art Museum and just sitting and staring at a painting? Or what is the tangible benefit to you to watching the Phillies win their first playoff series in 11 years? Well, you might say, That was a great benefit to me. But what is the benefit? We don't live that way in normal areas of lives. We we simply enjoy things for what they are. We find that those things are in and of themselves good and glorious. And so we are okay with enjoying all of them. We don't just eat a meal and we don't just want our food to be functionally nutritious. 
That is, it merely meets the, the, the needs, the necessities of our bodies, but it tastes horrible. None of us will enjoy that. We want the meal to be delightful, to smell good, to taste good, even to look good, right? We, we want it to be plated or look a certain way. Why? God has not just given us things to have this immediate impact on us that we can, we can trace, okay, this is good for this for us. But sometimes something is good in and of itself. And part of growing, part of maturity, part of learning to be a, a child of God is just enjoying that which he declares is good. And in these two verses, as Paul is writing a public letter to Timothy, a letter which he means Timothy to read, to have dispersed all throughout the church in Ephesus, Paul is holding up in these two verses the church, what it is and why it is glorious. The church at Ephesus to which Paul is writing, we talked about last week, is a church that is undergoing a lot of strain. We see that, we saw that in three different times in which Paul addresses false teaching. Clearly there were false teachers, there there was clearly false teaching that needed to be addressed. The church itself seemed to be being pulled apart. There are issues in leadership, issues with caring for people, issues on every front And so Paul is writing to Timothy, directing him about how the church is to function, how it is to work, how it is to be led and guided. And all of that is massively important and massively practical. It is practical not only for Timothy, who is leading the church, it is necessary for the Christians in that church, and it is necessary for us. Lest we think that how the church operates is meaningless. How a church is structured is meaningless. If we, if we go down that line of thinking, we will then wonder why then there is so much abuse and so, much, so many problems that are allowed in a church. And Paul here addresses what a church is, and he gives us some beautiful pictures to it. But before we... Jump into our text this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer, asking for the Lord to guide and direct us this morning? Father, this is your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would light, you would allow it to be a light to our path today. That we would be a lamp not only to our feet but a lamp that shines upon one of your chief gifts. A gift that we confess we are so often and so easily prone to neglect. Help us to see and to savor your glory and your grace and the gathering of your people. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we see... We can answer the question, why do we even have 1 Timothy in verse 14 and 15? Paul writes this. He says, these things, that is, both of these things refers to the things that he has written before and the things that he is going to write after. These things I write to you, 
though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh justified, or we might say vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. There is a a bit of urgency about this passage. There are only a handful of times when Paul will say, I write, I write. And each time when he does that in any of his letters, there is a sense of of an emotional intensity about it, a sense of purpose and direction. But he writes so that they may know how we ought to, or we might say how it is necessary for us. That is, there is an imperative about it. And and he writes, he writes because there was a potential for delay. And just, just let's slow down for a moment, put our finger on the old record player and just let us meditate on that for a moment. God used the very threat of delay in Paul's plans. Paul desires to come to the city of Ephesus where Timothy is. He desires to come and to to deliver this, the the subject of this letter, the the things, the talking points that he writes on in 1 Timothy. He wants to deliver this orally. That is, he wants to speak it to Timothy and to the church there face-to-face. He wants to be able to instruct personally this church and his protege, Timothy. But God has allowed it so that the very threat of delay causes Timothy to write this book. And without that threat of delay, those delays in life which you and I are so prone to be frustrated over, so prone to throw up in our hands, throw up our hands and say, why, oh God, would you allow these these hang-ups, these obstacles to occur? Why not just allow all of my faith and good purposes to, to come to fruition? Why bring about these delays? Why bring about these obstacles? And here, without the potential for delay, without this delay, Paul would never have written this letter and we would never have this book. We would be at a at a significant loss. There are matters that Paul addresses in this letter in such in these ways that are not addressed anywhere else. And so God uses even those, even the, the threat of delay to accomplish his good purposes for Paul, for Timothy, and for us. You see, the purpose is that We as believers, the church there, and we as Christians may know, he writes, how we are to conduct ourselves, or as some translations say, how you are to behave in the house of God. And and this sounds a bit like he's about to tell us, okay, children shouldn't be running around in church. Uh, When you come into the auditorium, everyone needs to have cups with lids on them, okay? Um, There's nitty-gritty things that we tend to be concerned about as we enter into the house of God or you enter into the sanctuary. But that is not at all Paul's concern. Paul wants us to know the stunning importance that God places upon the church so that we may know what God expects of us as believers. 
so that we may take our, our participation and our commitment to a local church seriously so that we will, we will know what is at stake in our church and so that we will see and savor God's chief gift to us. How will we conduct ourselves and live and operate as a church? And Paul gives three descriptions of the gathered people of God. And the first one that he tells us is he describes us as, here the New King James translates it, the house of God. The house of God. The image is is twofold. One, it is uh, tied in with the Old Testament picture of what the house of God is. That the gathered people of God, not the building, not the structure, but the gathered people of God are a house for God. That is, we are the dwelling place of God on earth. That as we draw together, Christ is with us, God is with us in a unique way that is not true of anywhere else. Christ can say to his people in Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. That is, the church has particular authority because of the presence of Christ. The church has particular authority to make certain pronouncements because of the presence and the work of Jesus. Often in the New Testament, there, there are times in the New Testament when we as individual Christians are described as the temple of God or the temple of the Holy Spirit. But most often, it is not individual Christians that are being referred to, but it is the gathered people of God in a local church. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Do you not know that you, that is you, plural, you as a church, you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Here's the point. God is present with us in a way that he is not present anywhere else. Let that sink in for a moment. In the time of Paul, as he is writing this to the church of Ephesus, to the church that is there in Ephesus, that church would have been small, overshadowed by the worship of the goddess Artemis that dominated, whose, whose temple dominated the entire horizon of the city. In fact, it is one of the seven wonders of the world. And no matter how insignificant, how powerless, how weak, how small this church may have seen and felt. Paul directs them to see, and he directs us to see, that when the people of God gather, God is there with us. A church is the temple of God in a unique way. More than this, that word we get translated here is house. It might be translated and often is in many translations as household. That is, this is the household of God. The, the church is the household of God. You have your own household, your own family name, and this is a, a royal family. But it is more than just family. The, the word, if, we were to ha- if you were to write family, 
then what he would be communicating is that the church, we are, we are all a family. It highlights and emphasizes our relationship with one another as believers in Christ. That is, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And certainly there are many passages in Scripture which highlight and emphasize that, but that's not what he's doing here. This is more than just the relationship. The household carries the idea of, of authority, Lines of authority built in, in a structure of love and care within a family. And so you have multiple times throughout the book of Timothy, multiple times even in this own chapter where we see this idea of authority tied with the word house or household. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 3. Elders are to rule their house or households well. There's rule and house Because if he doesn't rule his own household well, he can't be entrusted to rule over the church. Or deacons, just a few verses later in verse 12, deacons too are to rule their children and their households well. In the ancient world, a, a household was comprised not only of the family, but it would have been also the place of servants and others who were attached to that house. And we here, we are described as the household of God. What this pictures for us is a, a relationship that has lines of authority in it. Not only family, and, and he doesn't describe us only as, as a kingdom or as an army, which would be clearly just all rule, all authority, all, all, all tiered structures of authority and who has power. He describes us as a household in which there are lines of authority, and yet those lines of authority are alive and vibrant with familial love and care and concern one for another. Not only are we the dwelling place of God, we are the household of God. Or yes, where there are structures and organization, this is, this is not an unorganized religion. The church is meant to be organized and structured but it is to be alive with life and love. As one writer has put it, it is, you have both the trellis and the vine. Without the trellis, the vine will not grow well. And if we only focus on the trellis without the vine, what life is there? No, what we have here in this idea of of household is that we have God's love and authority within the church is meant to be on display. It is to be seen, God's authority is to be seen when that pastors and elders and all leaders willingly and humbly submit themselves to God and his word because this is the household of God. He is the master of it. We are to conduct ourselves in ways that aim at the long-term benefit of one another. And love and concern is to be seen in the way that we, we greet one another. In the ways that we welcome each other. That when we gather as a church, we do not merely gather for one another only to see our own friends, but we gather to care for other people. A couple weeks ago, uh, last week, you know, when it was rainy and dreary, disgusting out. My heart was deeply encouraged when 
one in our church family took some time to stand out on the porch with a couple of us and when he saw someone walking across the parking lot, he would escort them with his umbrella. Now, maybe you didn't get that special treatment, but I saw him caring for for other people in our church. That is what we are to be doing. Not only when we gather, but when we scatter. Throughout the week, it may mean a phone call, it may mean a text message, it may mean setting up a time to get together with breakfast or coffee. Or if you're not spiritual enough for coffee, there's tea. No. (laughs) To show hospitality one to another. Opening up our homes. That is what we are called to do. It is a household. Where authority and lines of structure are charged with love. But it's more than a household. We find that this gathering of God's people is described as the church of the living God. The word church here means assembly. It refers to to the gathering of God's people in local churches. And while we can say that every genuine believer, everyone who has put their hope in Christ, is a part of the the universal church, the universal gathering of God's people, here he is speaking of, of local churches. Local churches are the physical, visible manifestations of God's kingdom on earth, of God's people. And each church is a church of the living God. That is, it originates from God, and it is owned by God. That is, it is mastered by God. He is the king and ruler of it. Churches originate and belong to God. And Jesus came into the world to secure his church. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in Matthew 16, 18, Christ promises to build his church. And God sends his spirit into the world. And into particularly amongst his people. To vitalize, to empower, to strengthen, to accomplish all that he has called us to do. And we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 3 that God is determined to be glorified in the church. I am well aware that in our day and age, the church is given little thought and little consideration. But I do not know how we can follow Christ if we do not, if we do not love and if we do not attend to the very things that he was most concerned for. This is the church of God. It, it originates from him and, and it belongs to him. It belongs to him. It does not belong to us. It does not belong to a pastor or to the elders. It does not belong to the longest tenured member or the charter members. It belongs to God. It is the church of the living God and he is alive. Unlike the dead gods that were served in Ephesus or even today, are worshipped and glorified and prayed to even now in places all around the world. We serve the living God. And this God is the source of life. 
He is the source of power and strength for church. It is not in our leaders. It is not in our music. It is not in our buildings. It is not in our programs. It is in him and in him alone. He is the living one. And any life that we have or any church may have and experience comes from him. Our God is not dead. He is living. And if we are to think rightly and feel rightly about our church and know how to serve it well, we must know that it is the the gathering, the church of the living God. More than that, we are given one more description in verse 15. And this description is a description that pictures our mission as a church. This is the house, the household of God. This is the church of the living God. And this is the pillar and ground of the truth. This is not the pillar and ground of our truths, my truth or your truth, but the truth. This is the truth of God's word. This is the truth of the gospel of Christ. This is the truth about who our God is, who is high and holy and righteous in all that he has does, all that he has done and all that he does. He it is who has made all things and all things will one day give an account to him. You and I will stand before God at one point and give an account to, for, to, to him for all that we have said and all that we have done. And we find out in the word that we all fall short. We all fall short of his glory. That is, we fall short in every way of glorifying him, which is exactly what sin is. And the whole world, us included, stand condemned were it not for the gift of Christ. Whom God has sent into the world, and Jesus, the Son of God, entering in, has come to bear the guilt of sinners. He who was righteous where we have sinned. He died where we deserved death. And he rose again, vindicated by God, so that all who trust in him may themselves be justified by God himself. May receive forgiveness. Oh, friend, if you have never trusted in Christ, I would urge you today, look to him. This is the truth we as a church proclaim. This is, this is what we believe. This is why we exist. We are a pillar. We are to be pillar and ground of the truth. What this means is as the ground, the foundation or support, that we are to be the support for the truth. That we are to hold the truth steady in the midst of a world that wants nothing to do with that truth. In the midst of every wind of opposition. And pillars do not just support something, they, they hold them up, do they not? It is not just the foundation or the ground. It is a, a pillar and a, pillars hold things up. It, in Ephesus, there would have been no greater city for this to, to come out than the city of Ephesus, where the temple of Artemis, all around the temple, there were columns that were over 20 yards high, over 100 columns, 20 yards high, holding up the marble rooftop that would have dazzled and shined brightly. 
And that is what pillars do. We not only support, but we hold high. And that is what we are to do as a church. Not only to believe the truth and teach the truth, but to, to proclaim it, to hold it out as good and glorious, to, to show it off. In many ways, you can sum up the mission of the church as for the truth. To be pillars and grounds, to be pillars and foundations for the truth. And what is this truth that we are to uphold? We see this in verse 16. And without controversy, he says. And, and when we read that here in the New King James, some, some other translations will say and something along the lines of, and we confess. It is this idea of without controversy is all, the, the very word means that all believers hold to these truths. To be a true believer in Christ, you must hold to these truths. There, there may be other truths you must believe, but these two you must believe to be a follower of Christ. We do not define what a Christian is ourselves. It has been defined for us. And it is defined by holding to certain truths. And great, without controversy, he says, that all Christians believe these things without any controversy. These truths are without any controversy amongst Christians. Or we might say, we all believe these things. We all confess these things to be true. And so he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And when you and I read that word mystery, we tend to think of something that is kept secret. But that is not at all how he is using. In fact, the word mystery isn't so much a translation as it is a transliteration. The very word is where we draw our word from mystery, mystery from. And what it draws our attention to is that this is something that was once hidden but is now revealed. It is now made great and made known and these truths relate to godliness. Not, not goodliness, but godliness. That is, not how you and I relate to God by being good, but by how God relates to us through the goodness of his son, Christ Jesus. And we see that when he says the mystery of godliness, we know he's not referring to a godliness that is our own because in these next six lines... He does not refer to our godliness in any way. He refers only to the work and the significance and the person of Jesus Christ. So what what are these truths that we are to believe, that we are to proclaim? The first is that God was manifest. We'll take them two by two. God was manifested in the flesh and justified or vindicated by the Spirit. That is, the Son of God came to earth, took on humanity, becoming one like us in every way, except without sin. And that Christ was vindicated by the Spirit in all that he said and did. Think for a moment, Christ, that Christ comes to the earth, that he is described, God was manifested in the flesh, speaks to his deity, and also speaks to his humanity, the the truly God, truly man, dwelling in the person of Christ Jesus. And being vindicated by the Spirit speaks to his, his earthly ministry, his baptism when the Spirit descends and the voice of God proclaims, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. 
It is the Spirit who vindicates Him as Jesus performs miracles and does things that boggle the mind of everyone who adores Him and worships Him and even those who oppose Him. He is vindicated by the Spirit supremely in the resurrection. Though He died, yet He was raised, yet He rose again from the dead. God was manifest in the flesh, appeared in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Not only this, but he was seen by angels and preached among the Gentiles. That is, these two lines remind us that Christ's supremacy and victory over sin and death is to be known and declared not not only within a church, but amongst all people. It is to be known, it is already seen and known in heaven, and it is to be declared amongst the world. It is to be declared to the farthest ends of the world. And finally, Christ is believed on in the world and received up into glory. This speaks of his reception. We're reminded that we are not alone in our hope in Christ. Christ was received by heaven itself. And he is being believed on by men and women all around the world. Brothers and sisters, at this moment, all around the world, there are, there are others who are worshiping and believing and holding fast to Jesus. Every week, we, we pray for other churches in our own region. We pray for the work of God amongst his people around the world. We can be conscious sometimes about the pressures that we face. the pressure you face at work, the things you see on TV, the things that come across on the radio or in print, all of it can make you feel as if we as believers are alone. We know that there are other churches out there, but it gives us a sense and a feeling of powerlessness, of weakness. It gives us a sense that we are outnumbered. We are, history has passed us by. We are lost and dying out. And Paul reminds the church there in Ephesus, and he reminds Timothy, this is not the case. The testimony of Christ, the work of Christ, it was seen by heaven, and Christ himself was received by heaven, and, and he is being believed on all around the world. The aim of Paul in this passage is to hold high this multifaceted gem, which is the church, so that you and I may may gain a greater and greater appreciation for the gathering of God's people. That you and I may, may have a blood earnestness about what goes on when we gather. Certainly, there is no more glorious things going on in all the world than what happens when God's people gather together. Here we sing God's praises. Here we submit ourselves to his word. Here we worship from mind and heart and body and soul. Certainly, such glory is cloaked in that which is common and ordinary. We do it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. 
And it may soon appear that what happens here is of little to no consequence. And Paul is reminding Timothy and he's reminding the church and we are being reminded today that how we live together as a church, how we operate, how we structure ourselves, what happens when we gather is absolutely serious, is absolutely critical. Not only to one another, but to our very souls. God has brought us together. He has made us, redeemed us by the blood of His own Son. And He, is, he intends each of us to be, temp, to be bricks, stones in His temple. And bricks lying in the dirt serve no purpose. We are to attach ourselves to one another and in doing so fulfill the purpose for which we were made and redeemed. Brothers and sisters, let us take the gathering of one another seriously. Take the meetings of this church seriously. Take our obligations towards one another seriously. For if we place a low value upon gathering with God's people in this life, what makes us think that we will value the gathering of God's people in the next? Friends, what we have here as we gather together, is nothing short of the dwelling place of God, nothing short of God's household, nothing short of the church of the living God, the very pillar and foundation of truth in the world. So let us love one another. Let us be committed to one another. Let us serve Christ for the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are immensely good. You have not redeemed us and left us to our own devices, but you have brought us together that we may be a fit home, a fit temple for your presence. That we ourselves may grow And love and disciple those around us that they too may grow. Grow into what you have called us to be and to do. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to fulfill these purposes today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.